Um, today, I'm actually going to jump right into the word. Um, if you have your Bibles, I'd like to ask you to open up to 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings 18. If you have a physical Bible, I always encourage everybody to open up your physical Bible. It's different when you actually see it written in front of you, and I'm not making it up, and it's actually written there, and it's God's Word, and so it has a different impact when you actually look at the physical Bible. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. If you don't have a physical Bible, and you're not using your phone to tune in, then I encourage you, you know, download version or some kind of uh, app, and if you don't have that either... Then I have slides for you as well. So, First um, Kings 18, we're going to be reading verses 17 to 40. And let me just give this quick disclaimer. Today I'm going to be preaching on a passage that I can personally trace back as being one of the turning point passages, even in my personal walk of faith. So I can trace back to this passage as this being one of those passages that gave me the nudge, gave me the conviction, uh, gave me the unction to really jump all in and really follow God. And my prayer is that wherever you are in your walk today, that your heart would be open, that your heart would be good soil to receive the seed of the word. And that as we read this passage together, something would come alive in you, that the Holy Spirit would breathe upon it, and that this would be a a passage that you go back to over and over again, knowing that there's transformative power here. So 1 Kings 18, verses 17 to 40, I'm going to be reading from the ESV, and it reads, When he saw Elijah, so when Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you, by the way, he's a king, but you and your father's family have, you have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. So that's how much? 850 other prophets uh, of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God And I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Since there are so many of you call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. 
Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is God. He's obviously being sarcastic. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. So they've they've been at this all day, but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he prepared the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell And burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil. And also licked up the water from the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let them get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley, and slaughtered there. Amen. So this is an action-packed, you know, passage that we have for today. If this doesn't get, you know, your, your heart pace going, I don't know what does. Today's message is titled, How Long Will You Waver? How Long Will You Waver? We often employ in our lives... This wait and see and feel it out. We'll cross that bridge when we get there kind of approach when it comes to a lot of things. And I do this with many things in my life. A very silly example is food. You know, I'm a very easy to please person, usually. But sometimes I get very specific cravings. And you can plan on going out for burgers, but then when the time comes... And you really don't want burgers. Like you have a craving for Thai food. 
Or sometimes what I do at the office is I, I brought some leftovers from, from home and I put them in a the fridge and I have every intention to warm them up and just eat them like a responsible adult, you know, come lunchtime. But then when lunchtime comes, I'm like, nothing in me wants to eat microwave food. Like I, I just really want maratang right now. And so I will convince someone on staff to go with me to leave also their prepared food and come with me because the craving is so strong at that time. So I, it's simply because I have a craving at that time and I just want to act out on that craving at that point. This is first world problems, obviously, uh, but you get my point. The reason why we do this and the reason why I do this is because I like to quote unquote, keep my options open. I like to factor in my fickle emotions my back and forth indecisiveness, my changing alliances, my impulsive cravings, my in the moment preferences. And I like to have as much of a semblance of control in the form of choice. If I get to choose, then I get to be in control. And this is one of the hallmarks, not just of my life, but also of our generation. In an overabundance of options, in an overabundance of information, in an overabundance of decisions that need to be made, we love to have our options open. Even simple questions like probably what you're all wondering at home right now, what am I going to have for lunch right after service ends? Or what you're thinking about, you know, for the next week, what Netflix series will I jump on after I finish the current one? Or what kind of hand soap do I want to, you know, order from coupon or anything that requires decision making? You like to keep your options open. And for indecisive people like me, it's actually very, very overwhelming. In some instances, this is completely harmless. Why lock yourself in? to an option or a decision if you don't know where you're going to be at later, how you're going to feel later, if you don't know what information is going to be available to you later. Now, although there's a time and a place for flexibility and adaptability, there are certain decisions that we need to make, certain lines that need to be drawn, and the power they have, those decisions, is that when the testing comes, they'll already be in place. This is an example, and a silly example again, deciding to go healthy. If you're using the, let me figure out how I feel later approach on this, like I do many times, there's no way you're ever going to be able to stick by that commitment. If I'm waiting for the moment when I magically open my eyes in the morning and everything in me wants to go out for a run, uh, then I'm going to be waiting for a long time. I'm always, or nine times out of 10, I'm going to hit the snooze button instead of, you know, instead of throwing on some workout clothes and going out for a run. And so I say this from experience, but on a more serious and perhaps more weighty note, there's another example that is often undermined in our current day and age. And that is that of marriage vows. You don't employ the, let's wait and see how I feel later you know, approach, if you're going to keep your commitment to this person, you're vowing to be faithful to, you make a commitment on the front end. You say, I, you know, Jane Doe, take you, John Smith, to be my lawfully wedded husband, to have and to hold from this day forward 
And this is the important part for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer in sickness and in health until death do us part. What you are saying is even if we go broke, even if we get sick, even if we're deathly ill, even though we go through bad times, we are one. And that is a non-negotiable. That is the beauty and the safety of a mutual commitment. Now, when it comes to our faith, there are some things that will require flexibility and adaptability. And there are also some things that will require front end commitment. It will require a blank check. It will require trust that will be tested. It will require what we call faith. According to Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is a confidence in what we hope for, an assurance of what we do not see. That means that there is no guarantee, and yet I'm going to hold on to this faith. If you're a believer, this life, this journey with the Lord, will require making a decision, taking a stance, and exercising faith. And so my first point for today is that God... And his incredible mercy will orchestrate circumstances around you to bring you to a point of decision. God will orchestrate circumstances around you to bring you to a point of decision. So the moment that we are tuning into in 1 Kings 18 is a moment in history. It's a watershed moment where God didn't allow Israel any longer the luxury of passive acceptance in the way that things were going. You see, after Israel was liberated from Egypt, Israel had Moses and then Joshua, who led them not just into the promised land, but also back to God. In fact, right before Joshua died, his challenge and his exhortation to the people of Israel was, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, this was a moment where Joshua laid a boundary, made a decision to serve the Lord. And the people assured him that they would do the same. But then over the years, where different kings ruled, there was an insidious creeping in of pagan worship that begun to infiltrate the lives of God's people. As King Ahab's wife King uh, Queen Jezebel began to derail the purity of worship to God and bring in the cult of Baal and Asherah into the lives of Israelites. Maybe it wasn't an intentional choice in the beginning. Maybe it was just tolerance in the beginning. Maybe it was just a little compromise here, a little compromise there. Sure, we can still worship Yahweh, the one true God, but can this really hurt? You know, like we'll just bring in a few things and we're just tolerant. And what started as tolerance became the adoption of these practices and then the propagation and active encouragement of idol worship. And that was the point 
where God calls Elijah to set a choice before the people of Israel. Now in my life, there have been many, many moments, key moments of decision where the trajectory of my life has taken a sharp turn, where there's been a shift from just coasting along, making the best of whatever you've been given to making a decision and following through with it. Moments where instead of having someone make a decision for me, I am faced with a decision and all of its ramifications. And I've had to take a hard stance and stick it through. So when I say that I follow the Lord, when I say that I love the Lord, it doesn't mean that I haven't had other options in the past. It doesn't mean that, you know, I... I've lived under a rock my entire life and I don't know that there's many other ways to live, many other gods to follow, many other religions to adhere to. It's been a conscious decision. Seeing all the other alternatives, seeing all the other lifestyles, seeing all the other ways to encapsulate truth or quote unquote truth, it's been a conscious decision to say yes to the Lord. Even if you're raised by Christian parents, which I wasn't, by the way, even if you're raised by Christian parents, there's always going to be a moment where you yourself have to choose who you will follow. It's not a decision that can be made for you. What if right now, the current circumstances that you are walking through right now, what if Right now is our golden opportunity to make a choice again. Make a choice to let go of certain things. Make a choice to commit to certain things. What are the circumstances in our midst are the perfect conditions, the perfect circumstances for us to be forced to make a choice. Now, my second point for today is that your decision and your resolve will exalt God and will affront the devil. Because when you say yes to something, you'll say no to something else. And that something else will not be happy. In the story of Elijah, we see the prophet laying before the people of Israel two choices. Either you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, or you worship Baal and Asherah. There is no in-between. There is no middle ground. You cannot have it both ways. And this is a dilemma with many modern-day Christians, where you think you can pick and choose the aspects of Christianity and the aspects of the Bible that you like, and you can make a collage of sorts. You can Frankenstein together a picture of the kind of faith that you like, the kind of faith that doesn't offend you, the kind of faith that makes you comfortable and you borrow from the culture here, you add convenience here and you add a little bit of the Bible here, maybe, you know, some language here, but that is not Christianity because of the ultimate person that gets to define truth is your mind, your understanding, your experience, your perspective, your preferences. Then guess what? You do believe in a God and that God is you. But in this story, and in many of our stories, we see that God, in his mercy and his grace, he won't allow for this wavering for too long. 
Now, I understand that there's seasons to test things out. There's seasons to figure things out, figure out where you land, to process and ingest, to wrestle. Yes. But if that is no longer a temporary season that leads you to greater commitment to the truth, then it's not helping you. You can't delay the decision forever. You can't stay, quote unquote, undecided forever. This was a historic moment for the people of Israel. The God of Israel showed himself to be the God above all other gods, the ultimate power. And this was an undeniable win. It was a clear choice. And the people of Israel chose this day to make a major detour from their course of trajectory and turn back to the Lord. But here's the thing. The moment that you make a decision for God, you'll quickly realize you're saying no to other things and act the fort on it. In the case of Elijah, it meant that once the 450 prophets of Baal were shown to be false prophets of a false religion, then it was time to eliminate them from the life of the people of God. They needed to be silenced. They needed to be destroyed. That their lives, uh, their lies and their temptation to compromise, they would be removed. Now, I'm not saying don't go, don't go and kill somebody. That's not what I'm saying. But it does mean that you need to remove compromise. You need to guard yourself by removing temptation. It might mean cutting out certain things from your life. It might even mean cutting out certain people from your life. This is not a popular notion, of course. But there are decisions that need to be made. The stakes are high. And compromise is not an option. What will also happen is that the devil will begin to push back. When you're playing his game, you're no threat. When you're playing compromise, this like... But in Korean, you say young daddy, like one foot here, one foot there, kind of like straddling the fence. You're not really a threat to the enemy. But the moment you take a stand, the moment you say yes to the light and no to darkness, the darkness will push back. In the case of Elijah, once he got Israel to turn back to the Lord and put to death the prophets of Baal, Queen Jezebel went after his life with vengeance and he had to flee into the desert. This means that there will be spiritual warfare. There will be a tug and pull. There will be pushback. But fear not, God will be with you and he will not fail you. You know, last week we had a panel of sorts where we had two of our newest elders join in on the conversation. And one of the things that Elder Yesu Kim Russell mentioned She said that the church is not supposed to be a cruise ship, but a fishing boat. We're actually not here for entertainment. We're actually not here to be pandered to. We're here on a mission. It actually reminded me of a quote that I I remember hearing many, many years ago. And it's this. Brace yourself for it. It's kind of intense. The church is not a cruise ship on its way to heaven. The church is a battleship stationed at the gates of hell. Let me say that one more time. The church is not a cruise ship on its way to heaven. The church is a battleship stationed at the gates of hell. 
Yes, there's joy in the journey. Yes, there's comfort and healing and acceptance. But we're also here to do some damage to the kingdom of darkness. And this brings me to my last point and a bit of good news. Your present resolve will anchor you for future battles. Your present resolve, your present decision will anchor you for future battles that you don't even know are coming your way. One yes to God will lead to another yes and another yes and another yes. This is how you end up living a life walking the narrow path. How you run the race all the way to the finish line. You don't just sprint the beginning and then, you know, kind of drag your feet the rest of the time until you get to meet Jesus. This is how you get to run the race all the way to the finish line. If you look through the Bible, there's so many mighty men and women of God in these moments of incredible courage where they choose to praise God. They display incredible faith. In moments of great danger, even at the risk of their own lives. And when I read these passages and I read about these men and women of God, I have to ask myself, where did that come from? Like, where did that, where did that phrase come from? Like, for example, when Daniel is taken captive into a foreign land as a teenager. Now imagine what a teenager looks like. Imagine what you were thinking when you were a teenager. (laughs) <laughs> we have a teenager in the room. No, no, we don't have a teen. Kind of a teenager. Technically a teenager in the room. Imagine what goes on in your mind. Now imagine, as a teenager, you're plucked out of your home, your faith community, your family, taken captive to a foreign land that has foreign gods. And instead of just waiting and seeing, Let me see how this is going to play out. Daniel, as a teenager, made a resolve to pray to the Lord and the God of Israel every day. Now, when you see things like that, you have to ask yourself, this wasn't like a decision, like an impulse of the moment kind of thing. He had made a decision a long time ago, and that was that he was going to be faithful. We see how even his friends, defying the king's orders, they're threatened to be thrown into the fire. And they say, if we're, th- if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, then the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. They've already decided in their mind, our God is a powerful God of miracles. And then they continue on to say, but even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty That we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. They've also made up in their minds that their God is good. This doesn't happen overnight. This has been settled in their minds a long time ago. Yahweh alone is God and there is no other. The same is said of Ruth when she says to Naomi, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. She had already made a decision by the time that question was asked of her. The same is said of Peter. When the disciples are starting to get offended at Jesus' teachings and a bunch of them leave and Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, do you want to go away as well? And Peter says, Lord, 
to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Let me ask you this question. Where will you be by the time your next testing comes? Where will you be the the next time hardship comes your way? When sickness comes your way? When family crisis comes your way? When financial hardship comes your way? Will you be resolved in your mind already? Will you have settled it in your mind? 2 Corinthians 6.2, it says, Indeed, the time is now. Today is a day of salvation. It's not a decision to be put off for tomorrow or when the occasion arises or let's see how I'm feeling the next month. It's a decision to be made here and now. Now, here's my encouragement to you. And this is the comforting thing. Once you make a decision to follow the Lord... You will not regret it. He will see you through. He will carry you through. He will wrestle with you through the doubts, through the fear, through the disappointments. He will be there for you. And you will not regret it. I can say that with full confidence because I myself, I myself look back on my life and I think about all the different ways in which I've had to make different sacrifices. I've had to say no to different things. I've had to say even no to certain kind of friends or certain kind of recreational activities, a different kind of life trajectory. I've had to say no to many different things. But if I were to look back, and if God were to ask me, would you do this over again? I would say in a heartbeat, I would say yes. God is worth it. His love, his acceptance, his truth. His communion, his fellowship is worth it. And I don't have a single regret. Every yes I've said to him. This is my encouragement to you. If there is a decision that you need to make today, or if there's a recommitting that you need to do today, do it today. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait till circumstances in your life change. Make this decision today. I'm going to challenge you with two commitments to make this week. Number one is obviously make a commitment to God. If you are, if you're a bit on the fence, if you are toying around and entertaining with compromise, If there's different things in your life that you feel God is very clearly asking you to lay down or to cut out of your life, today is the day to make that decision. Say yes to God, even if it means saying no to other things. The second commitment that I want you to make this week is make a commitment to his body. Make a commitment to his body. This is a very big ask, and this is a very tall order for many people, especially those who have experienced hurt at the hands of the church. It is saying yes to pray for a broken body. It is saying yes to 
riding it out, even through uncomfortable decisions and uncomfortable conversations. It means that you're going to be let down a lot, which is why you need to make that resolve on the front end. Spoiler alert. You're going to get hurt by the church sooner or later. It's going to happen. That's because the church is made up of sinners like you and me. We're all broken. We're all imperfect. We're all on this journey together. And so we will offend. We will hurt. We will do the wrong thing over and over again. This is why this commitment is necessary. Now, when I say to his body, I'm not saying just to this local body, but make a commitment to his body. If it means finding a church that you can settle down and then do that. If it means, hey, my current circumstances mean that I have to move every few years. What does that mean? Every time you move, make a commitment to his local body wherever you are. It doesn't mean, you know, until you die, until your dying breath, this is the particular community you're called to. That's not what I'm saying. That might be for some people, but I don't think it's for all. What I am saying is commit to his body. You need to make this resolve in your mind because when offense comes, and it will come, when offense comes, that resolve will be tested. That decision will be tested. And if you haven't made up in your mind that, yes, the church is going to fail me. Yes, his body is not going to be perfect. But I'm still going to stick it through. I'm still going to have hope that God is preparing for himself a bride that is spotless for his son. Then it means that this is a resolve that you need to make. For life. Make a commitment to his body. With all its imperfections. I want to close with this. As I ask the praise team to come up. You know sundown tonight is actually very important in the Jewish day. In the Jewish calendar. It's actually the most important day of the year in the Jewish calendar. It is the day of atonement. It is Yom Kippur. And it actually commemorates a pivotal moment in the history of Israel. When only a few months after they had been delivered from Egypt, Israel had already fallen into idol worship by creating a golden calf and bowing down to it. It was only months before that they had said, God, we're going to follow you out of Egypt, wherever it is that you lead. And a few months later, they had already fallen into idolatry. And Moses goes up Mount Sinai for 40 additional days of fasting and pleading God for God's forgiveness. And favor is secured for the people of God. And he comes down that mountain with that message of hope to the fallen people of Israel. That is the day of atonement. That same year, a tent of meeting or the tabernacle was built in accordance to God's specifications. And the day of atonement was practiced by having the high priest go into the Holy of Holies, sprinkling the blood of a lamb on the mercy seat, saying forgiveness comes from one God alone. Life comes from one God alone. Favor comes from one God alone. 
we shall have no other gods before him. He is the Lord and there is no other. It is a reconsecration. It is a recommitment of oneself for the worship of the one true God. And maybe it's time for us to do that as well. To renew our vows to God. To declare not just through our mouths, but also through our lives, that He is the Lord and there is no other. We shall have no other gods before Him. This is our choice and this is our decision. In the history of our church, we've had some very unhealthy instances of commitment. I'm very aware of that. Where it was forced and enforced, where one felt trapped or whatnot. But I can say without a doubt that we've also had some incredible instances of healthy commitment, which is what drew me to this church in the first place. When I first came to this church, what really fascinated me was that there was a company of people who were crazy enough to go all in for the Lord. And there was a purity in their hearts. There was a childlike faith. There was this throwing oneself on the goodness of God and trusting that he would catch you kind of way of believing in it. And I had never seen that before. I had never seen people saying yes to the Lord in that way and worshiping in that way and contending for people around them in that way. And that's really what drew me to this church in the very beginning. And I know that that is something that still remains. I know that that's something that still is in store for us as a community. A people who in a costly and sacrificial way will say no to other things in order to say yes. A wholehearted yes a yes without mixture a yes without compromise giving god full access into our lives that he would have all the glory there's so many incredible pictures that we see in the entire bible that we could pinpoint as our favorite but if i were to ask god god what are your favorite parts of the bible treats it all but I think now would probably say God would say like those moments of courageous surrender to the Lord costly worship to the Lord where broken men and women chose to trust him again broken men and women chose to believe that he was good that there was no God that was like him that there's no other found there's no other source of life, of refreshment, of love, of forgiveness. There's no other God besides him. I believe that those are probably God's favorite moments in the Bible. And as he looks at our lives, I'm sure those are his favorite moments as well. Even when you don't feel like it's a strong yes, those moments where you wrestle and you just take that one step towards him once again where you choose to say that small yes to him 
again, and then the next day again, and then the next day again. And then you look back one day and you find that you've walked this straight and narrow path, this journey with the Lord, one step at a time, yes after yes 